Good morning, everyone. Sorry, I'm running a couple of minutes behind here. Appreciate everyone being here this morning. We're in Revelations chapter 3, and we're talking about the dead church. But if you will, please pray with me for a moment. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you and praise you for being our Father, for watching over us and taking care of us in this life. Father, we thank you and praise you for all your blessings, all the wonderful things you do for us. We thank you that you sustain the world and our lives that you keep everything going in this universe. We praise you and thank you for all of those things, Father, for watching over us and being our fortress and our shield. We ask, Father, that you would lead and guide us in this study and help us to learn more about you and more of what you want us to know and help us to draw closer to you, Father. Help us to become more and more like our Lord through these studies we do here, Father. We ask that you would bless and Comfort and heal those of our number who can't be here, Father, who are having trouble or in the have been in the hospital or or are in the hospital. We ask that you comfort those who've lost loved ones and and bless bless all of the folks who are here and help us all to do everything here in a manner that is pleasing to you, Father. In Jesus' name, Amen. So let's see. We were looking at. Question five. Actually, I think we had we had pretty much answered question five, and we were ready for question six here. Let me read. This is a very short letter. Let me read these verses again for us. And this is in Revelation chapter three, verses one through six. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." So with those uh, verses in mind, if we look at question number six, what did the Lord promise to those who overcome? It says here uh, in verse five that they shall be clothed in white garments, right? What does the uh, what do the white garments imply? We'll take it a piece at a time. Purity, right? Purity, okay. Um, and that would, you know, and that's correct. I mean, purity, it would it implies that we've repented, right, from our sins, that we've been cleansed in the blood, right, of Jesus. Do you have something, Matt? I was just thinking right, right in verse 4, it maybe contrasts with how some had not defiled their garments, which means some had defiled their garments. Right. Some 
Right, right. They're being faithful as opposed to being unfaithful. Right. Right. We know the we know the, the soiling of the garments, the stain of the garments is sin, correct? I mean, so um the other thing that he mentions is he will not blot their names from the book of life. So that's that's a good reward to have, right? The book of life. Yes? So he will acknowledge our name before Father. That is the third piece, yes. He will acknowledge our names, right? If you if you read that, hold on just a second. It's kind of implying more than just like an acknowledgement or a statement. You know, he who overcomes, as an overcoming person, as a victorious person, and going along with the crown of victory, it's like he will proclaim, he will proclaim us victorious to God and the angels as victors. Almost like, you know how we have at the Olympics, you have the little ceremony, the, the victors come up on the, on the days and stand, right? So it's kind of like he will proclaim us or those who overcome as victors in life to God. Yes. Right, he will be he will be acknowledging in front of God those who have been victorious, who have followed Jesus through life. He will be saying, "Yes, this one knows me," and it's kind of like he'll be bragging on us. It's kind of like a praise and a celebration, that kind of a, that kind of announcement. And this was written to that congregation, but I I relate that to us as a congregation ourselves. So. Now that was, let's see, that was the last question I had on that church, that part of this chapter. Did anybody have anything else on, that was the dead church. Did anybody have anything else on that? Yes. It's important that our name is in that book. Yes, it's very important that our name be in the book of life, right? Yes, it is. If we're not in the book of life, then we're in trouble. How do we get in the book of life? Oh, go ahead, Pat. Yeah, there is a song. Yeah, is your name written? How's what's the exact title? I was thinking it is your name written in the Book of Life, but that's probably I don't remember the exact title of the of the song though. Is my name written there? Is my name written there? Okay, that's what it is. Okay, okay, yeah. So kind of like in that sense, you know, how do we get our name written in the Bible? Right? I mean, written in the Book of Life. Right. Right by doing all that he right by obeying, accepting, by being baptized. Right, so becoming we becoming a child of God. Right, yeah, that's it's kind of the family book of God, the book of life. So, all right, um, I'm going to read the next uh, Revelation chapter three, verses seven through thirteen, and this is in my Bible. This was titled "The Faithful Church." And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, 
He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength. Have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. Pardon me. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I have a little historical reference here for Philadelphia. Um, around before, before this time, but around this time, they had had a great earthquake in that area. And uh, a lot of the city had had a lot of damage. And Caesar had sent a lot of aid to help rebuild that city. And temporarily, they renamed the city in his honor to Neo-Caesarea. I'm probably not saying that very well, but just meaning... Uh, Caesar's new city. They were kind of naming their city temporarily after him because of the aid that he had sent. But the reason I'm mentioning this is there's some feeling that of the idea of the new city and a new name and the fact that they had had an earthquake kind of ties into some of these verses. And hopefully we'll see that as we go through these questions. But I wanted to mention that because that's some historical context for us the first thing, before we even look at question seven, how does the Lord describe himself here? Yes. Right. He has the key of David, right? He's he's holy and he's true, but I was I was looking at this and he has the key of David. Whatever he opens, no one can shut, and whatever he shuts, no one can open. I think that also ties into the, some of the things we're going to see here, because it relates, well, what does this relate to? In a, just in a general, broad sense, yes. He has that authority and control, right? God has given him that authority and control. If he opens the door for you to be able to go into the kingdom, no one can shut that door. And on the other side, if he shuts a door, that door, then yeah, that's the end. So it's just talking about his authority and saying that he, he is the one who's going to determine whether people come into the kingdom or not. Yes. Jesus himself says, I am the way, I am the door, I am like, yes. 
He says, I am the way, the door. He's the shepherd. Yep. He, he has that authority and that control of all this. It speaks to his authority and somewhat to his judgment because he can shut the door to those that he does not want to allow in. So, I have another kind of odd question about this, but what is the key of David? What's, what's your sense of it? The key of David? Yeah. Well, Christ is from uh, the city of David. Christ, well, yeah, Jesus is from, well, <laughs> Jesus is from the line of David, right? Of David. Yeah. But, yeah, man. I think it's like referring to him being in the line of David. He's the authority of David, of course. The Messiah, um, the king, yeah. the kingly line is coming through David. So I think that's the relationship. And of course, I think as my mom was suggesting, the city of David is Jerusalem, and that's that is yeah. here too, New Jerusalem, right? Yeah, right. And that's that's where I was thinking too. He has he has the key to the city of David, but but we're not talking just the earthly Jerusalem that's here and now. We're talking about the New Jerusalem, which is more of what we're heading towards in, in this book, in this context. Um, only he can open that gate and let us into the New Jerusalem. He has the key to the city, so to speak. Did you have something, Judy? Huh? It's the key of the kingdom. Yeah, he's got the key to the whole kingdom, right? So, yeah, he is the key to the kingdom himself. So, um, And he can close the gates of the city and none can get in. And we'll, we'll see that when we get to that part, too. So, I just wanted us to look at that and realize what, what he was saying and the authority that he has there. Uh, but if we look at question seven, what had the Lord done for those in Philadelphia? Right, he set before them an open door which none can shut. And then... He's, then this says why, and you could say, you know, yeah, I guess why is okay. Right. They had kept his word and not denied his name. And, and he says they had a little strength. But they, the, the main reason is, like you're saying, they're faithful. They, they had kept his word and not denied his name, right? Then if we look at question eight... What was the Lord going to do to those who claimed to be Jews but were actually the synagogue of Satan? Well, if you look here in verse 9, he was going to make them come and worship at their feet, basically acknowledging, make them acknowledge that uh, they knew Jesus and that Jesus knew them and loved them, right? Going to make them accept them. That's part of all this door being open and shut thing. Well, hold on. Have we heard of this synagogue of Satan description before? Have we heard that previously? Well, we heard synagogue of Satan. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 9, and uh, I didn't copy that here, but if you look back at chapter 2, verse 9, he's also referred to the synagogue of Satan before. And what it is, is these Jews are basically trying to block these Christians, right? Trying to block them from being a part of God's family, trying to basically disavow them and keep them from being able to 
feel like they can even be in the kingdom, probably trying to dissuade them and maybe even, I don't know. But anyway, they are coming against them, definitely. Yes. They're probably persecuting them and trying to get rid of their, you know, their group in the city and everything. Right. So, so, um, the fact that we've heard this before, and this is a different city, a different congregation, tells us that more than one congregation is being persecuted by more than one group of Jews, right? So there's a lot of Jews that are not accepting of Christians. Whether it be Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians, I don't think they really cared that much one way or the other. Yes? When it talks about the kneeling down, it makes me think of the scripture that every knee shall bow. So if we don't bow to him now in this life, when people are being uh, judged by the Lord, <clears throat> Right. Well, we yeah. We, every knee will bow to the Lord at that time. Yes. Yes. Um, let's see. So, so basically, my my way of thinking of this and the way he's talking about this is that Jesus is telling this congregation that no man, no Jews, no anybody can stop them from coming through this door that he's opened for them to come into the kingdom. Does that make sense? That's how I'm reading this as far as he's saying, I have this door, I've set this door open for you, you are welcome to come into the kingdom. And though they are being persecuted and bothered by these Jews and possibly other people too, they cannot prevent them from coming into the kingdom. Yes? I think he's referring to this congregation and just the persecution they're going through he specifically mentions the Jews. We don't know if there's other people persecuting well, them or not. Oh, I I don't know about it. Doesn't seem to be anything. From what I can read here, it doesn't seem like it's anything like that in the congregation. Like they have a split in the congregation. It's more like they have this synagogue. Of, uh, of Jews who don't believe in Christ who are persecuting this congregation that does believe in Christ. And some of them are Jewish and some are Gentile. So Anyway, so the Lord is encouraging them and telling them that no one can shut that door on them. He decides who opens that door to heaven, to, king, to the kingdom of God. So, Does anybody else have anything on that? So, if we look at question nine, what did the Lord say he would do for those in Philadelphia? Right, he would keep them from the hour of trial that was coming upon the earth, right? And then the question, why? This really kind of goes back to Pat's earlier answer. Because they were faithful, right? Because they kept his command and persevered. So that's that's a pretty simple question, simple result. Now, we look at uh, question number 10. What warning and exhortation does he give them? 
Let's just go with uh, the warning first. Let's say, what warning does the Lord give them? Right, behold, I come quickly. Sometimes I think we, we look at this incorrectly because he says, I'll come quickly like a thief in the night. And sometimes I think what is really intended more than soon or quickly is like suddenly, unexpectedly, I will arrive. I will come back. So just a different different way of looking at it from the word. I, I think sometimes we take that the wrong way and it should be more like suddenly and unexpectedly, which is the idea of a thief in the night too. Anyway, so so then what's the exhortation does he give them? Yeah, hold fast, right? Hold fast what you have that none may take your crown. Right? That crown of victory in Jesus. That's that's what that crown is. So we want to hold fast to that and not let that let not let anyone take that. All right. So if we look at question 11, what promise does the Lord give to him who overcomes? And there's several promises, actually. Like the, the first one is to make him a pillar in the temple of God, right? Now, what does, that, what does that mean? What do you think that means? I have an idea of what I think it means, though. Pillar holds something up. Okay, a pillar can hold something up, yes. So yes, ma'am? like how um, Peter writes about how we're being built up, build up like living stones. Holy Temple of God, and the Holy Spirit is in the midst of the temple, and like in this heavenly city. Well, I guess it's not a stone; it's a, it's a pillar. It's still made of stone, right? Right. We're, we're part of that structure of the Temple of God. Okay, we're part of that structure of the Temple of God, right? They uh, and I and I was thinking it was a couple of things because he also says, which we didn't include right here in this quote, but um, he also says that they would never leave God's presence, right? So they would stand there. In the presence of God, they would be firm and unshakable, kind of relating back to the fact that they had had this earthquake and these problems, that they would be firm and unshakable with God in the presence of God, always. That type of idea. And then one of the other promises was to write on him the name of his God. And then another promise was to write on him the name of the city of his God, the New Jerusalem. And we will hear more of this New Jerusalem in Revelation. Uh, you can look at uh, John, uh, Revelation 21, verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So if you read the description of that, you'll, you'll see that a lot of times this is what we refer to in a general idea as heaven, because we know that's, that's the final result that we see in Revelation. Yes? Later on, we're going to see something negative that will be written on the people that are not faithful, and that's the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast does come up and is mentioned as being on the hand or the forehead, right? So... That's, that's something we will get to. Yes? How does that 
that connect a deeper connection to him that we belong, we are his, and he's again acknowledging us. And it kind of reminds me of a young woman when she gets married, her name is changed from the name she was given with her parents to the man that she now is with, and she becomes his missus. And right. so she belongs with him. Right. And even when you adopt into a family, usually they take, you give that child your name, right? When you adopt someone. So, yeah, when you bring someone into your family, they, they take your name. I was going to make a rougher comparison, which sounds kind of mean, but I just, if you think about it, in the West, in the Old West, how did they identify what was theirs? They branded them, right? Now, that, that sounds kind of mean. I don't mean it like would be branded, but... I mean, but we will be marked as belonging to God, as being a child of God, right? And that we belong there. So that that analogy might not have been the best, but that was what I what came to my mind, is that we would be marked as belonging to the Lord. Um, there is a final one to write on him his new name. And again, this goes back to that sense of belonging, it implies that we, we have this new identity in Christ and as a child of God and that we belong to God and to Christ. Does anybody have anything else on that? Okay. So, I'm going to move on then to uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. In my book, this is titled as the Lukewarm Church. The Lukewarm Church. Let me read these verses here of this letter. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, I want to start this letter, our, our questioning of this letter, off by looking at how does the Lord describe himself? And there's three main things he says about himself. He's the faithful and true witness, right? Now, this is in a legal sense. 
He's telling us he is faithful and true in a legal sense. His testimony is true and reliable. What he says is true and reliable. He also calls himself the Amen. Now, the Amen, basically, we all know what Amen means. It, it means, you know, like, so be it. It means, like, truth. It's just truth, fact. He is truth. So it's kind, of, it's kind of an odd way to say that, but that's what that is getting at. And then <clears throat> the part where it says the beginning of the creation of God, it's, there's also some translation that will say ruler of God's creation. Either way is fine. It's just showing that he is the origin of all creation and he has that authority of all creation. So it's kind of a two-pronged thing there. So there's, yes? It's significant, though, because he is the life giver. Yes, he is the life giver and the light giver. Both. Life and light. Yes. Yes. Um, so I just wanted us to see that and realize that he's proclaiming that authority. Again, talking about his authority and who he is. If we look at question 12, for what does the Lord condemn those at Laodicea? Yes, ma'am. Sorry. Neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm. Right. They're lukewarm. They're neither cold nor hot. They're tepid is a word that's used. Now, there is a, again, a historical context to this statement. This city did not have its own water source, and so they used an aqueduct to get water from other places. And so they did not have either cold or hot water. It was just tepid, and a lot of times it was contaminated by minerals in the aqueduct. Okay, So that's why he's comparing them to that water. Their water was neither cold and refreshing nor warm and healing or cleansing. It was just blah. And so he's telling them they are just blah. Okay? I mean, that's, that's an odd way to say that maybe, but that's, that's what he's telling them. Yes? I had a reference, if you want to read it, in Colossians 4, <coughs> 12 and 13, about the Odyssea. Colossians 4, 12 and 13. 12 and 13. Well, okay. I'm slow, but I'll get there. Okay. Now this is the um, this is the uh, ESV version that I'm reading from. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, Jesus greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you. And for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis, is the best pronunciation I'm going to do. Heropolis is actually not too far away. It's a few miles away, and it actually had hot springs. And then there was another town that we would know the name of, if I could remember it, that had colder water. And that, But they were situated between these two towns, and they had no water source of their own. So they piped their water in, and it was never hot or cold. So... 
Anyway, so there is that. Um, does anybody else have anything on the lukewarm before we move to the next question? Okay. So what does the Lord say he would do because they are lukewarm? Right, some translations literally say he would vomit them out of his mouth, right? And some say spew, uh, and I saw one that said spit. Either way, the idea is that he would, yeah. Well, okay, yeah, and what does that imply about them? Nauseating. Nauseating, yes. It's nause right, nauseating, disgusting, intolerable. Okay, that's that's what that implies if you've ever been sick and <clears throat> had that happen. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's what he's uh, that's what he's saying about them. That probably shocked them. Because of what we look at question 14, what had they claimed? Right. They claim they are rich in need of nothing. They are self-sufficient, don't need anything. And that's that's a problem that a lot of people who are wealthy run into, right? And and I can see that. It, it would be easy to fall into that trap. And yet he says, yeah, what was their true condition? What was their true condition? They are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So if we look at that then... What riches do they have? I mean, most likely from that context, the worldly riches, right? They probably have money. They probably feel like they're okay in that sense. But what are they in need of? Spiritual. Spiritual, Spiritual riches. That's what they need. Yes, man. I know this is true of one of the cities, I think it's this one, where they had had some earthquake or some disaster and, and they were offered by the government to rebuild the city and they, they were like, we can rebuild this ourselves because <laughs> they're so rich and they did that maybe even more than once or whatever. That might be part of the background on this too. I read that and that that this is that one. They are so self-sufficient that when they were offered help to rebuild, yeah, they, they refused it because they were that rich. Monetarily, you know, worldly. Yes. Uh, and this here it says they were known for the black sheep that they had, and their wool was coveted, so it was very expensive, and that's how they became rich. Oh, is that how they became rich? I I remember something about textiles, but I didn't know what it was specifically. That's much more specific than what I had. So, so they had this black wool that they were known for. Yes. And isn't there kind of something maybe, maybe even as Americans, we have this in, rugged individualism that we take pride in. You know, I can do it. I can lift my, myself up by my own bootstraps. And I built my business and I, I can take care of my, I don't take charity. You know, all these different things that we yes. maybe so often have that really are what these folks are doing, right? Right. We have some of that. We do have some of that too, definitely ourselves, where it's like, oh, I'll do it myself. I don't need any help. I don't need your charity. I don't need anything, you know. And and sometimes maybe that's you know just logistically true, but um, we can take it too far to where we think we don't need God, and that's when it's a problem. So, 
All right. Um, does anybody have anything else on that? All right. So I think we're out of time for this morning. So I want to thank you for your time and your attention, and we'll pick up with uh, 15 next week.